Well, good morning. Um, not met all of you. I'm Rod Mays, and uh, was here with you last Sunday night, and have preached a few times before. And glad to be with you this morning. I've been with RUF over 20 years, and uh, Clemson Prez means uh, a lot to me. I'm thankful for you and in this city. If you'll look in your Bibles at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I was asked to uh, sort of begin a new study today on the faithfulness of God. And uh, we've heard that word faithfulness numerous times this morning, either in prayers or in some of the liturgy. And I don't know how familiar you are with like the history of faithfulness, but obviously it begins with with God. It begins with God. But we're going all the way back to the Old Testament. And there are numerous stories in the Old Testament that have often grabbed our attention, like, I mean, the Red Sea experience is an amazing thing, where the people of God are trapped by the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are behind them, the Red Sea's in front of them, there's no way across, and God parts the sea. We, we believe that. Or Daniel in the lion's den, another great example of God's faithfulness to Daniel. I mean, we could go through the Old Testament just almost book after book, chapter after chapter, and see all these examples of God's faithfulness. New Testament, Jesus stands out as the, 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 the great fulfillment of all of God's promise and faithfulness in the incarnation and, and the life of Jesus and all that he did. Now, those are foundational and those are absolutely, extremely important. But what about today? What about in your own life? Where, where do you point to God has been faithful to me? Here's some examples, recent examples. Here's a young man who is taking his first international trip. He's a little anxious about going to another city in another part of the world for several months. His parents are anxious. But he's got some friends that have been in his campus ministry, and they say, hey, I, we know some people in that city. And so he gets on the plane, and as he takes his assigned seat, he's sitting right next to a PCA pastor and his wife, who know this international city very well, and say, you don't have anything to worry about, we know the city, we'll help you get oriented, we're going to be there for a few weeks ourselves. And we don't know the end of the story, but we know what he or his parents thought might be 
extremely nervous, anxious time has turned out to be something really good. Or you could be the person that I heard about this just in the last week who was turned down after five job interviews and one of those jobs was going to be the job that was going to change his life, his marriage, everything, and every door was closed and he was almost continuing his search again and then the dream job came through. Hey, can you come in from an interview? And by that afternoon, he was in a job that he absolutely loves. God is faithful. God has provided. But oftentimes, the faithfulness of God can be a little different than just the good things. Matter of fact, in Psalm 119, 75, the psalmist says, Lord, in your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. In your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Now, with all the good things that we're talking about, how it's turned out for everybody, sometimes there is affliction. There is distress. There are fumbles in the last quarter, in the last seconds. Those fumbles are good for some people, and they're bad for others. You know what I mean. <laughs> so, but there are fumbles. There is affliction. In your faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Now let's look at this passage. It's just two verses. First Thessalonians chapter 5. These are fairly new Christians. Paul is writing to them. They're a little immature. They've got a lot of concerns. And one, one of their concerns is, like, what happens to the body when, when we die? If there are people who have already died and they're in the grave, what happens to those people? That's, that's sort of a theme through First and Second Thessalonians. And so there's a lot of discipleship that Paul has been doing, a lot of encouraging and we come to the last chapter, and in verse 23, we read, it's almost like a benediction, and now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship and now to hear from you, to hear from your word. And we pray that your word will grab our hearts, not just our minds, not just that we will be taught something, but you will, you will actually grab our hearts for your glory. We do pray that in Christ's name. Amen.
What is your greatest need? And there are, there are lots of needs. And psychologically, you know, Adler and Maslow, folks like that came up with a hierarchy of needs, and you need your biological needs, you need your physical needs, uh, you need your social needs. But as we, as we read through the Bible, what we really see is that we are in need of redemption. We have redemptive needs that we desperately need Jesus. Our, our greatest need is for God to be at work in our lives for our good and for His glory. And that even means that sometimes affliction or suffering is for our good, but we need for God to be at work. You need to know, I need to know, that God is doing something in your life, that God's at work. You're just not stagnant. That God is active in your life, and you understand you have these redemptive needs. And Paul, writing in this chapter, just a few verses earlier, says this. He says, we urge you, brothers, this is in verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Be patient with them all. Now, there's three categories there that I fall into, and I wouldn't be surprised if you don't fall into those categories. He says, be patient with folks because folks are disorderly or idle, that is, they're loafers. You tend to loaf a little bit. Or they're faint-hearted, or what we would call spiritually depressed. We get into those low moments, those dark moments of feeling faint, cast down, spiritually depressed. They're to be encouraged. Or we fall into that category of being weak. And, and actually the word here has some tendency toward immorality of sin. We're weak, immoral, and we need to be helped. We don't need to be cast aside, but we need to help those who are struggling. And it's in those orders, in those ways of disorder, disorderly conduct or spiritual depression or faint-heartedness or, or weakness that God shows himself to be faithful. And that's what Paul is getting at here in, in these two verses and so I've got, two, I've got two main points here on these verses. My first point is the faithfulness of God defined. What is the faithfulness of God? The faithfulness of God defined. And the second point is the faithfulness of God affirmed. How is it affirmed in your life? How is it affirmed in my life? The faithfulness of God defined and the faithfulness of God affirmed. Now, how is it defined? It's the, it's the never-failing aid of God. So just think of it this way. If God is faithful, it means that God is aiding you, that God is helping you, that God is with you. His name shall be called Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. In the Old Testament, this was, this was really understood in a way of loyalty, that God is loyal. 
that God is stable, that there is a fixed covenantal love, what we call hesed. It's, it's, it, it's God's everlasting kindness and mercy and favor. It's, it's His covenantal, covenantal purpose and commitment to us that, that can never be lost, that can never be changed. A loyalty. To think that, that God is loyal to you, that it's fixed, He's stable. In the New Testament, it's obviously shown to us in the life of Jesus. The idea is that God is trustworthy until the end. Trustworthy until the end. That Jesus is the great model of that in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, and in His ascension. He has us all the way. And He can be trusted. Now, without getting too teachy here or academic, let me, let me talk for just a moment about how that's a process. Because if you notice in the text, in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. So we've got to talk about this idea of calling a little bit, what it means to be called, how, how God calls us. It's, it's a process, and theologically, this is often referred to, what we call in theological terms, the ordo salutis. Which, which means basically the, the order of salvation. That you, when you became a Christian, some of you, it just boom, like that. You were walking down this bad way, and you completely turn around, and not just away from the badness, but you turn to Christ. Repentance is not just turning away from that which is bad, but it's turning away from that, but turning to Jesus. And you did that. Others of us may have grown up in a Christian home and from the time we were children, or we don't even know the time that we have loved God and it's been a process of growth for us. And over stages in our life, it, 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 it waned a little bit, then it got stronger, it waned, it got stronger, and then it, it finally all kind of came together and, and it kicked in. But that started with God before the foundation of the world saying, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to elect you to be my own. Out of all the people, I love you. And I want to set my, my, my face to you and my heart to you. And I choose you to be mine. And then he called us to himself. He drew us to himself and then... He regenerated us through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came and, like in John 3, it's, it's like the wind. You, 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 don't, you, it, you only see the effects of it, but something starts to happen in your heart. And because you were chosen and you were called, the Holy Spirit now takes out that heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, 
and enables you to be converted. And the two elements of conversion are repentance and faith. And until we read the passage this morning, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. And what happens, you get this new heart, and then you respond in conversion with repentance and faith. And then based upon your faith, you are justified. We're justified by faith, and you're made right with God. And then God adopts you into His family. You become His child, and it is permanent, and it is fixed, and you belong to Him. You are His son or daughter. He is your father. And then you come into His family through adoption, and then He says, you need cleaned up. So he starts the process of sanctification. That's where we're going to dwell a little bit this morning. And in the process of sanctification, he begins to work, and you begin to grow in grace. And then through this very hard life, even though you may be afflicted, you may fumble, through this hard life, you will persevere. Because He is for you. Because He is faithful. And then the last stage of that process is what we call glorification. Where you will be raised from the dead and you will have new bodies. I preached on that a few weeks ago here. And you'll be glorified together with Christ. in The new heavens and the new earth. And that's what awaits us. And that's what these folks in Thessalonica were a little confused about. Okay, well, what happens to us? What happens to the body, for instance? To illustrate this, I, I, had, I had probably two major conversions in one of the churches I pastored, which will always be very special to me because both of those men are elders in a church today. And when I first met them, in their late 20s, early 30s, they did not know Jesus. Nor was that in their background. One was from New Jersey, the other was from New York. And they came south. The guy from New Jersey was an accountant, CPA. The guy from New York was a Jewish engineer. They'd gone to Rensselaer Polytech Institute. Environmental engineer. The accountant came to know Jesus through his children who came to Bible school. It's, it's like one of those things you talk about all the time. Let's have Bible school, ministry, invite parents to come and see the children sing or whatever. And you don't know what's going to happen with all that. But this is an exact documented case that somehow this man was drawn to know Jesus because of his children and the children's ministry. It should be an encouragement to you. The Jewish guy, it took a long time. And the way he came was that his, his wife was pregnant, she had to have bed rest, and, and the women in the church were so good about going over there and cleaning her house and cooking and taking care of her because she... She, she just had to be in bed. And, and she was a Christian. She'd been converted through a Campus Crusade in, in New York. 
and was a believer, and she started coming to our church. He didn't come, but when she got sick, our people ministered to her, and he saw this, and he'd never seen this. He'd never seen this kind of incarnational, relational aspect of what we do in the body of Christ. It's pretty amazing to him. These people would come and clean his house and cook and do all these kind of things. Well, he, I got to know him, and so we started having breakfast or lunch. And it were, they were breakfast and lunches of arguing. I mean arguing about the resurrection, about the Passover plot, about evolution, about anything you could think of. He was so, he was so far from the kingdom. He was, he was one of these persons that, persons that will, will, people that will never be converted. I don't know how he will ever come to know Jesus. And this goes on for a year. Baby's born, they're fine. But he starts coming to church. Particularly on Sunday nights. And he would bring us Torah. He invited me to go to the synagogue with him or temple. And I did. And we would argue, and we would argue. One Friday, I had breakfast with him one Friday morning. I went back by the house before I went back to the church. And I told Debbie, I said... Jim Williams is so far from the kingdom, he will never be converted. I don't see how he'll ever come to know Christ. That was Friday. He's there Sunday morning. He comes Sunday night. Sunday night, we used to have this little time when people could stand up and talk about what the Lord may be doing in their life and what we called sharing and and, you know, the Lord's done this or this. And, well, Jim raises his hand. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> That's why those things can be risky. <laughs> he raises his hand, and then what's he going to say? And Jim says, well, I don't, I don't really know how to do this. I, I, I don't know. I see people on TV do this, you know, and he... And, and he said, I, I just didn't know what to do, but I want you to know, after this morning, and I was preaching on the fact that Jesus said, come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And he said, folks, I, I guess I did this right. I went out in my backyard, and I asked Jesus to come into my life. And man, he was converted. He's an elder. He knows Jesus. That's what I mean by election and calling and regeneration and conversion and justification and adoption and sanctification and perseverance and glorification. It's that beautiful process where God is so faithful. And let me apply this one other way. Just... Some of you may wonder about your adult children. And like they were baptized as children and somewhere they wandered off. Let me, let me just say, let me just say, or you, or you may be here and be one of those that you're just not sure about all this. The story is not over. We're not at the end of the story because God is faithful. 
And God has promised to be your God and the God of your children. And he draws people to himself because he's in this, this, this process of being faithful. Now that's, that's, that's how it's defined. Now secondly, let's look at how the faithfulness of God is affirmed. Again in verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He will do it. He will do what? He will sanctify you. Because he is faithful. J.I. Packer says, and you think about this quote now, listen to this carefully because it sounds backwards. Packer says, you are not strong enough to fall away when God is resolved to hold you. You are not strong enough to fall away when God has resolved to hold you. In verse 23... Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sanctification here, as Calvin says, it's the entire renovation of man. I like that phrase. Renovating That sanctification is, is the renovation of man and it affirms God's faithfulness in working in us. It's, it means that we are set apart for God to make us holy. God sets us apart. And sanctification has a past, a present, and a future dimension. In the past... God has chosen you to be His. He has already declared you in a definitive way to be a saint. So sanctification in, in one sense is past and it's definitive because you are now a saint because you belong to Jesus. The present aspect of sanctification is progressive. You are becoming like Jesus. And as Paul says through the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, abstain from evil. Watch out about evil. Watch out about your conduct. Watch out about that disorderly, faint-hearted, weak, or immoral life. Be careful, and that should be changing. You should be progressing in grace and growing in grace. That's the present aspect. And then the future aspect is that one day we will be like Him. That's the realized aspect of sanctification. So it's, it's definitive, it's progressive, and it's realized. Past, present, and future. Now notice in this text who the initiator is. The initiator of this is the God of peace. And Paul refers to God this way as the God of peace, thinking of, of what is summed up in Colossians 1, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross, that Jesus did this reconciliation by and through his blood. And God is the initiator, and there are two types of peace here. All through the Bible, when we think of peace in this way, I want you to think of it vertically and horizontally. Vertically, we have peace with God. And that's Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That little conjunction is important. And, and we're right with God, we have peace with God, we've been justified, we are righteous before Him. You, you will never be any more righteous than you are right now, theoretically, theologically, because of justification. You are right with God. And then there's the horizontal peace, which is the Philippians 4, the peace of God. The vertical is justification. The horizontal is sanctification, where Paul says, you know, don't be anxious, pray about everything, give thanks, make your request known, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will be with you. And you can't have the peace with God if you don't have peace with God. If there's no peace with God, it's hard to have the peace of God. One is justification, one is sanctification. Sanctification flows out of that justification. And that horizontal peace, again, is how the faithfulness of God is affirmed because it's down on this horizontal level where we live. You have roommates you have a husband, you have a wife, you have children, you have parents, you have people at work, you have friends. We are in relationship with all kinds of people. How do you treat them? That's how the faithfulness of God is affirmed in our sanctification, in our horizontal life. It's how we treat people. How do we love people? How did Jesus love people? How did Jesus treat people? And see, we're in that process of being made to be like Him. Well, what's the scope? The scope of this, in verse 23, that you might be sanctified in your whole person, that you might be sanctified completely, that you may be sanctified through and through. He uses the, the phrase body, soul, and spirit. Now, soul and spirit basically in the scripture are synonymous. So we have body and soul. That's what we're thinking about. So in our soul or our heart, what is changed or affected is our thinking, our feeling, and our doing. Because the heart is the, is the seat of all of this. So my cognitive ability, my thinking is changed through sanctification. I'm to think as God thinks. My affective ability or my emotion, I am to feel in relationship to how God is at work. And you read through the Psalms and you, and you see various feelings in the Psalm. The, the, the emotion will not always be what we think is desirable. But we are feeling people. And we have emotion. And we have that effective ability, and that is to be influenced and changed by the work of the Holy Spirit 
in our hearts. And then we have the volitional ability or the doing. Thinking, feeling, and doing. And so what do I do? What is God's will? Well, actually, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so what is going to be good for my sanctification, I can do that. If it's not good for my sanctification, I shouldn't do it. If I want to marry this person, are they going to be good for my sanctification? Okay. If they're not going to be good for my sanctification, then I probably shouldn't marry them. I mean, that's just the principle that you have. An old hymn, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by His love and power controlling all I do and say. That, that's a life that has been influenced by the sanctifying grace of God and His faithfulness. That faithfulness is affirmed. And then what about the body? Well, as I said earlier, these folks in Thessalonica are concerned about what happens. He talks about the second coming and the thief in the night and all those kind of things are going to be raised. And like, okay, what about those who've already died, who are already asleep? And so there is exhortation all through the Scripture that we take care of these bodies. That this is not material that we abuse in any way we want to abuse. Because the body will be resurrected and it will be glorified together with Christ. And interestingly, in the first five chapters of Thessalonians, if you look at the end of every chapter, it's talking about the second coming of Jesus. At the end of every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, those five chapters, it ends with the second coming of Jesus. And he was trying to help these folks understand that you'll be okay. You live or you die, and Jesus comes back, you will be okay. Now, are you okay? Are you okay? Jesus comes this afternoon. Are you okay? Do you know him? Let me apply this. Why did you believe, after what I've said here for the last few minutes, why did you believe? Now let me ask it further. Why do you still believe? Why have you not walked out? Why have you not said, I've had it? All that affliction I've been through, what my family's been through, COVID, church stuff, everything. Why have you not walked out? Because of God's faithfulness. He has hold of you. You don't have the power. You don't have the power. Secondly, how can you sleep like a baby? There's all kinds of things, things you can, how you can apply that, but I'm just thinking about your heart, the things that keep you awake, the things you wonder about. Well, that last section of Romans 8, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but you know, Romans 8 begins with the fact that there is no condemnation. And it ends with the fact that there is no separation. And he reminds us in that last section that God is for you. 
that God did not spare His own Son, that Jesus came to shed His blood to die on the cross for all of our sin. That was the plan. That was in the process. That's the redemptive need. God is for you. God did not spare His own Son. No accusations will stand against you. The Lord is faithful, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, the Lord is faithful, He will establish and guard you against the evil one. That's powerful. The Lord is faithful, He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. God is for you, He did not spare His own Son, there will be no accusations that will stand against you, the devil cannot slander you, and nothing will separate us from the love of God. That is the work. And so you see the faithfulness of God in Jesus as Jesus lived for you, earned complete, perfect obedience and righteousness, as Jesus died for you, as Jesus was resurrected for you so that you might live, and that Jesus ascended and is now interceding for you, praying for you. That's the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Father, you have given us such powerful passages of Scripture that draw us to Yourself, that calls us to want to know You, to love You, to experience Your faithfulness. You've been so kind and, and so gracious. And we pray now that You will take these words and apply them to our hearts. And we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.